Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by the writers and curators Tess Charnley and Saeem Demerkin and the poet and writer Adam Herdman. Tess reviews Frameworks for Resilience, their series of online talks produced by Liverpool's Fact, and Saeem joins us from New York to discuss Art Club 2000, the recent exhibition held at Artist Base. But first let's start with Adam's article, Shooting Time, Art Ads and the Agora, which looks at how artists have responded to the closure of museums and galleries by occupying public billboards and advertising spaces. Considering these recent strategies alongside past interventions by artists such as Barbara Kruger and Gordon Matter-Clark from the late 1970s and 80s. Adam, the public and the idea of the public has been increasingly altered through technologies, none more so than through the global pandemic. But I wondered if we could begin by examining the changing understanding of how the public body is constituted through the Agora, but also Habermas's theories of the public, including 19th century bourgeois living and privacy. Great, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really good question, and it covers a lot of, of uh, history right up to the contemporary moment. But um, what we understand by public space now, uh, I guess, is quite a sort of shifting and, and uh, liminal space between one place and another, public transport. Uh, it's a space that sort of demand, has demands on our time. Um, but in Habermas's uh, 1962 writings, he talks about, he, well, he comes up with this idea of what he calls the public sphere. So as opposed to a public space like a town square or what he calls the agora, taking the Greek word, but in, in Roman times it was called the forum, um, which constituted the public in a particular space, that he saw as a way of controlling the public from a hegemonic power structure. So for him, public and power when describing individual figures were kind of interchangeable in the Greek or Roman sense, because a public figure was someone who could speak to the populace from a kind of position of power, whereas the private space, which now in our ideas of, of capital might have a sense of private property or ownership for him it was more that was more the individual the space in which you existed as an individual kind of in its military sense the lowest order of the of the army the private um whereas you know nowadays the public spaces for the masses is is considered some some kind of mass collective space and private is way more to do with ownership um but habermas wanted to redefine it outside of space because he thought that if conversations and discourse and sharing of knowledge and ideas happened in a space that was the public sphere and that sort of belonged to the people and I think it was quite a revolutionary idea um, in in itself because it moved it moved discourse and it moved the operation of a collective as a public away from physical spaces where it could be easily contained uh, and the way that translated through into the early days of, of uh, technological advancements than the internet was I mean we use the word forum all the time to describe um, chat rooms and spaces for public debate and discourse in, a, in an internet setting and in a lot of ways that has been incredibly liberating it's connected people across uh, borders um, all kinds of degrees of separation can talk and exchange ideas and information but of course also in, in a very contemporary sense in the later days of capitalism and the internet is very much the, the foreground of um, our activity as a public being targeted. Our conversations being monitored. Um, so in the piece, I take Habermas's 
ideas and I just try and review it all a little bit from the perspective of being a bit worried about this, about this discursive non-physical space because it's suddenly being attacked by the, by the powers that be as well. And that examples of art moving out of galleries that are institutional or out of kind of private um, art market kind of circles and out into public spaces, the, the advertising space being the example that I look at most, um, it's starting to be a bit of a symbolic return to the agora, return to the marketplace or the, or the public square, uh, which can actually be a way of act like flipping harbour masses stuff on its head and reactivating a kind of um, resistance to power structures, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that's no, an interesting point, of course, because it made me also sort of contemplate that legacy of, I suppose, of situationism and, and happenings, all of those things that sort of the counterculture of the 60s mm. and 70s. Yeah, I think in conversations about um, arts interrelationship with capitalism, it's it's opposition to these structures and the forces of capital. Barbara Kruger is someone you sort of have to talk about. Um, she really, I call her the lodestar for these conversations in the essay, and I think that she sort of remains because her work in the 1980s very deliberately stepped out into spaces which were being aggressively commodified. Mm. Um, Times Square in New York being one um, massive example. Um, she occupied the digital screens there with the phrase, I'm not trying to sell you anything. And that simple phrase appearing on an advertising screen appeared incredibly radical. Uh, it interrupted uh, an almost endless stream of adverts. And I think, what, I think where Barbara Kruger was placed historically in these conversations in the 1980s um, for, the, for the current purposes of the essay is particularly interesting because it was right at the beginning of this, of the the totalizing approach of, of capital through advertisements, being everywhere all the time and occupying almost every space, mm. um, started to look like the final aim of global capital. Um, and so that started to move into a physical space in terms of having products that were the same everywhere in the world. And that being that homogenous approach to like a Starbucks tasting the same wherever you are in the world, McDonald's having the same branding wherever you are in the world. That homogenous approach to occupy every space with the same thing um, became a system of control and system of power uh, that, was, that was sort of communicated through also occupying all of these screens and all of this space and not letting anyone have any moment where, where they aren't enacting themselves as a consumer mm. um, and Barbara Kruger stepped into those spaces and just interrupted that a bit because I think what she recognized among all kinds of other insights that she had incredible eyes was that even even if you sort of interrupt the urge towards total like totalizing capital in a momentary way if you can step into the spaces that they want to completely uh, have control over just a bit and, and just you know pierce through that screen a little bit with some other aim that isn't to make people into consumers, that isn't to homogenize, uh, is, a, is a victory of sorts. It stops capital being total, which is what it wants to be, which is what you know capitalists want it to be. Um, and she also, I mean, there's, it's, there's the human um, implications of having a homogenous world are very worrying, especially for people who are members of communities that are minorities or are underrepresented. If you start to have a, a system of capital, of course, those communities that are underrepresented in the image economy 
are going to be the ones that are actual risk and human risk. So it's it's a theoretical and a discursive concern in the 1980s, but Barbara Kruger recognized that it's it's also a very human and lived concern, what adverts are doing. Uh, yeah, she jumps into it with her, she yeah. uses slogans, she uses language in, a, in big, bold font and pithy and succinct slogans like advertisements was, were beginning to use so they could be recirculated. And she uses those tools against it and tries to deconstruct its totalizing impulse, which I thought was really, really important. I wondered, Adam, if you could talk a little bit about recent projects that are using billboards. You mentioned uh, Uta Kirkelsberger and her project Division Revision. I wondered if you could say a little bit about how that came about and is it in fact the billboard companies themselves that are eliciting these projects or is it the artists involved? Sure, it's a little bit of both. I think I think that um, artists um, like with Jack Arts, uh, Uta Kugelsberger, who is a curator, is uh, and with um, the Piccadilly Lights screens in Piccadilly Circus, which have had art displayed on them by a project called Circa, run by a guy called Joseph O'Connor, who's a great artist and curator too. I think people like Uta and people like Joseph have have noticed the opportunity. Mm. Um, for a couple of reasons, because because for so long um, things have gone the other way to how Barbara Kruger did it, where she co-opted advertising speak to make um, interventionist art. Obviously, we've seen adverts themselves stealing the creative image economy of of, art, of contemporary artists and using that for their own ends. I think artists who are, who are value for the kinds of tools and forms of expression that artists use that can be kind of that can be a channel for some maybe some quite radical ideas if we do it in the right way also with the coronavirus pandemic and the changes in our current contemporary age i think that public space in uh, billboards and screens is obviously of less monetary capital value as there are almost no people in piccadilly circus yeah. for the last year or so um, or looking at billboards, and so the um, artists have recognised that opportunity. Oh, there's some space that is that is not being used for its purpose. Perhaps perhaps something can be done here. And so Joseph mentioned that he actually reached out to Landsec, which is a multi-billion property company that owns the Piccadilly Greens. But it also because um, he he noticed that opportunity, and he actually reached out in 2000 uh, earlier in 2019, pre-pandemic. So it's not all just the pandemic that's made that opportunity arise. But what we've started to see post mid and post pandemic is the companies themselves realizing that there is some uh, value here. They can they can use art to fill these spaces and trade in cultural capital rather than monetary capital to kind of culture wash themselves, make make themselves look good and conscientious or creative or cool by filling spaces which aren't generating income like they usually do. Um, to display art and so it, it becomes a difficult conversation it becomes um tough because ja i mean jack arts have all kinds of examples where they they use billboards to advertise things that they see as valuable but it's big for publishing companies like penguin um right. but they also do try and utilize this space in certain opportunities and i think that the the, pro the program with uta kurgelsberger is a great example of that because it includes very very radical artists um, like yasmina sibic for example um, and manages to place their art in in spaces 
which is a symbolic, it's still a symbolic reclamation of a space that's been used as a system of control, even if there are fewer people out there um, to see it. And even if that's why it's being allowed to be there, if you, if you pick the right art and curate it in the right way, um, and I think there are certain examples of that at the moment, um, it, can still be, it can still be both a symbolic victory in a sense and, and an actual enactment of activist art. Um, but it is, it's a very difficult conversation because, I mean, yeah. the gatekeepers of these spaces are allowing art in and you've got to make sure that you're not just holding hands with, with mm. this stuff, you know? And also, you know, there's invariably, we talked a little bit about technologies, but invariably, you know, we're seeing those images being recirculated, you know, they get photographed and placed on Instagram or other image sharing mm -hmm. devices. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of circularity, you know, not many people maybe see a led by donkeys, which you also mentioned, um, action, you know, if they're projecting the cliffs of Dover, but we will see it replayed in other ways. And I think it's interesting, the sort of capturing of the spectacular nature and of, of, a, of, a, of an artwork. Um, mm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I spoke with um, Tony Cox, who's one of the contributing artists to the Circa project on Piccadilly Lights. Um, and he was very vocal about the fact that there's no there's no one space for art like the the public spaces can operate one way he said the institutions and the galleries can operate another and the internet can operate in another way and he saw that as that he saw that as the great potential of art in that it can shift and change and take to the field in these different forms and, and he he told me that he think he feels it sort of needs to do that mm -hmm. um and i, th I think the conversation we mentioned which is difficult where if you're co-opting the language of advertisements how do you remain uh make it an intervention make it radical and can keep the thrust of what you're doing rather than just becoming another part of the image economy is to remember that reaching as many people as possible is is what adverts want to do um, i mentioned a billboard that's advertising itself near me at the moment in the piece that just says we're everywhere reach 95 percent of the uk and it just struck me that and it was really near to one of these examples of a jack arts piece with some some quite cool looking really nice art displayed on it and i was like well that's that's the juxtaposition isn't it you don't our adverts are trying to reach as many people as absolutely possible and a lot of things on the internet are trying to do that too i think art is trying to generate meaningful moments and mm -hmm in trying to reach as many people as possible, that, that might get lost a little bit. But at the same time, you've still got to include as many people in the conversations as possible and be as accessible as possible. And I think this tension between the physical spaces, which currently people aren't really seeing that often, and the billboards, et cetera, reclaiming those is very good symbolically. And then, then resharing these instances on the internet or other social media can be a way of also reaching a lot of people. And yeah, for Tony Cox, and I think I was convinced by him too, it's, it's a tension between the biggest possible discourse, but the most meaningful possible interaction. You also mentioned a few old articles that have been published in Art Monthly. I wonder if you could say how they informed your viewpoint. Well, what I took from the previous articles that I mentioned, um, Dave Beach particularly wrote writing in Art Monthly a while ago, hmm. uh, was the idea that, that you can tell whether something is making a good intervention on public spaces and artwork. And he talks about the fourth plinth and he talks about memorials. If, if the art in the public space is intended to be permanent, chances are it's speaking down and it's another example of hegemony and it's making claims on space that are proprietal. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, 
quotes a critical Thomas Crowe in saying that a, a good piece of interventionist artwork, public artwork, is necessarily temporary because its existence is, is in contradiction to where it is placed. It's sort of not where it's supposed to be, um, but is saying something by being there. And so it's therefore, it's therefore knows that it's temporary. It's gonna be taken down at some point. It's, it's an intervention. Uh, and as things become more subliminal in tech, like that, that intervention space comes much shorter and shorter and shorter. So in, in conjunction with what Dave Beach was saying, I think as, sorry, yeah. And public art, which, which um, considers itself to be radical should aim quite deliberately not to be permanent. Mm. Um, which I think the idea that I bring in, um, I bring in Gordon Matter Clark and his shooting through windows of institutions as a performance piece because it's it's destructive and interventionist and makes a point about architecture and hegemony. Um, I also brought it in. I didn't have space to mention this in the piece, but because he did it at about six a.m. and then it was cleared up before any visitors were allowed into the gallery, nobody really saw it. Mm. Um, and visitors arrived later in the day to view the the exhibition and uh, everything was cleaned up everything was as normal new glass had been put in the windows but it's still something we're talking about it's, it was 1976 this happened it's still something we're talking about now it was a memorable piece of art um, i think it's own temporary nature or like it's momentary nature it's the second that the air rifle smashes through the windshield that's of importance for the idea it's trying to communicate um, and I think in a lot of ways and in a lot of moments of history, art which recognizes that it's gonna take place in, in tiny moments is the art which creates ideas and conversations that endure rather than Dave Beach mentions a memorial built by the architecture firm Carmody Grark uh, for the victims of the 7-7 bombings in London. Uh, and he, he takes issue with it because it has this permanent hegemonic structural approach to memorializing. Mm. And for him, that's that's the wrong kind of public eye. It doesn't generate discourse. It doesn't generate um, a kind of sharing of, of power and conversation or anything progressive. It's it's a hegemony. It's power. You also mentioned Walter Benjamin's essay from 1940 on the concept of history, in which he describes the start of the French Revolution. I wonder if you could say a little bit about why that stood out for you, that particular section. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved that bit of the Walter Benjamin essay. Um, he describes the start of the French Revolution um, from, a, from an account that he's read. Uh, and in this account, um, we get a report of lots of people across Paris at this momentous point in history, at the turn of, uh, the, turn of the 18th into the 19th century and this revolutionary moment. They're so overwhelmed by the power of that moment in time that they that several people across Paris independently of each other started shooting their guns at the clock towers because they wanted to preserve this moment um, as if as if you could stop time itself by stopping the clocks is how Benjamin describes it um, of course you can't if you shoot a clock it will stop but time goes on but in a sense they have kind of stopped time because because the the fact that they're never going to stop the clocks it's a symbol it's a symbol that endures you remember the fact that they've done this because it fails to actually stop time itself in a sense so that that act that happens in a moment and knows it's a temporary moment, it knows it's not going to be 
a monument. They didn't think, oh, the French Revolution is beginning. I'm going to build a big steel statue right now. <laughs> they thought, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot my rifle at a clock, and, yeah. and it's the same impulse to kind of stop time, but it's done in a, it's done in a different way that makes this idea and um, metaphor for poetry yeah. kind of like failing to preserve material, but but therefore preserving an idea. And I think in this conversation in, about art that is deliberately temporary, short videos by Tony Cox going up on the Piccadilly lights for two minutes a day, interrupting the flow of adverts, or Barbara Kruger jumping into the Times Square screens for one moment and go, hey, just for this moment, I'm not trying to sell you anything. That is a way of knowingly not stopping time in a way that a monument tries to exist forever. It'll eventually crumble, it's failed. But if you know that you're gonna fail and you just do something in that instant, the idea of what you're doing can, can sort of therefore endure. And I, that's why I really like that, that bit in Walter Benjamin. I think it illuminates a lot of these conversations for me. Talking of time, I'm afraid we've run out of it. However, more about the history and the site of the billboard can be found in Adam's article, which is in the current April issue of Art Monthly. Thanks again, Adam, for taking the time to speak with us today. Next, we have Tess Charney, who reviewed the series of talks, Framework for Resilience, produced for The Fact in Liverpool. I wondered if we could begin by talking a little bit about the title of this series, Framework for Resilience. The subject of resilience obviously takes on particular concerns in the pandemic but the talk itself reaches beyond this initial reference point to take on broader political intersections around ecology. I wonder if you could start just by explaining a little bit about the nature of this conversation that took place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was one of the first two theories, this idea of how could we create work for resilience in such a difficult year for everyone. Yeah. And initially I kind of thought maybe that seems quite idealistic um and obviously it was with when entering webinars and discussions about resilience you have to think about issues of access um the idea of kind of are we just stimulating a conversation that's existing in our own echo chamber mm. rather than making any difference um but I thought that FACT handled this really well um, because they, the way they programmed it, they split it into three sessions. And also they included speakers with lots of lived experiences mm -hmm. to bring to the conversation. And the actual generosity of the conversation was what made it so rich, I think, um, because it was like they'd created this space where the panelists really felt they could share with each other and then the audience actually was um asking you know often sharing their own experiences and asking quite personal questions in relation to the topic um so for example um there was lots of conversation about climate justice in relation to racial injustice and how those two things can't actually be separated um, and how colonialism and kind of colonial frameworks are what links those two things. And um, I think it was Jack Tan in the second session put it really interestingly because he was kind of saying that the problem is, is that we view the environment as an other mm -hmm. um, in the way that we, well, in the way that the colonial project views people as other and as resources to extract from. 
And as long as we do that, we're always going to kind of not treat the environment properly. Mm-hmm. And we actually need to see it as something that exists alongside ourselves, almost taking on kind of indigenous um, ways of thinking and frameworks, um, viewing it as an elder and something to be respected. And some, and if we saw our extraction from nature as actually an extraction from ourselves, then we certainly wouldn't be doing it in the same way. So I, I think that was what I found so interesting was this kind of overarching view of how the colonial colonialism is what has kind of led to um, extractivist capitalism, the climate crisis, um, racial injustice, and how we have to think of those things as interconnected, actually how we have to have some sense of personal responsibility because we're all part of that project. And, And how looking at what we can do isn't about kind of taking on the voice of people who are marginalized or the voice of the climate because actually that's a violent act it's about kind of platforming people and opening doors and kind of platforming the environment i wonder if you could talk about how the talks were structured and how they unpack some of these histories into and alongside present day concerns it was actually over i think it was three weeks so it was a session one session a week um, and the first session, each session was had a kind of moderator mm-hmm. um, that FACT had invited. And then there were panellists. So the first session was called Ecological Empathy and focused a lot about the idea of empathy and how we can create that. So um, one of the panellists, um, Celine Saman Vernon, was talking about how empathy is something we have to install and how actually the really important thing is about unlearning and how unlearning should be a project that's actually um, implemented quite structurally. So like workplaces should focus on like unlearning attitudes. Um, And then the second session was climate justice from decolonialist perspectives. And this was an interesting one actually, because they structured it as kind of story sharing around the digital campfire Okay. which I I understand like why why they did that <laughs> um and each panelist shared shared a story so that was really successful because it felt very intimate it allowed the panelists to kind of actively respond to each other and again lived experiences and kind of it felt very organic in the way the conversation went but there was just something a bit jarring about how you couldn't have the that idea of like sharing around a campfire. You couldn't have that atmosphere, particularly if you're the audience, kind of feeling like a silenced. Mm. Even though you could say stuff in the Q and A, it didn't have that um, lack of hierarchy that a campfire could have. Um, and I just think it's one of those things that we have in this kind of pandemic time that didn't work digitally. I love the story sharing, yeah. but I just think the idea of the digital campfire wasn't quite right. Um, but I mean, it was a really successful session in yeah. terms of the conversation. I think at one point you described a stream of consciousness. Was that part of that campfire talk or was that relating to another? Um... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that was something that kind of seemed to happen in lots of the talks. They were very, they were very transparent in that they'd had 
all had meetings beforehand, like to talk about how the talk would go, as I think all organisations do when they're programming events. But it was just so conversational and people were just kind of speaking and, you know, directly responding to each other's points. And yeah, it kind of felt like witnessing the stream of consciousness. Like sometimes you could almost watch the panellists going through their thought processes live. And that was kind of a really nice thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then the final session was on migration and adaptation. And um, I actually really enjoyed that session because halfway through it, they did a screening of a work by Nilu Sharifi. And I thought that was a really nice way to kind of anchor um, what they've been talking about and then move into the next session, um, mm-hmm. next part of the session, sorry. And this is um, the film, is this the film Gulf? Um, that speaks yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. The heritage, Iranian heritage. Yeah. yeah, and I've actually watched that about 15 times now because I think <laughs> okay. it's such a powerful work. <laughs> I think, um, It just kind of, that work encapsulated the sense of, yeah, just the real sense of missing a place. And so what what happened was she wasn't allowed to, um, well, she wasn't able to visit Iran during the pandemic. Um, A trip she had was cancelled, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was just this sense of missing the place. So what she did is she went onto Google Earth and um, kind of took uh, screenshots of all the places in Iran that she would have visited um, and then made them this film with um, poetry, like a voiceover of poetry she'd written about her relationship to the place and kind of addressing Iran as you might a person that you miss, which was so powerful. And then it had music by um, Yang Scali. So yeah, I really really liked that work and I thought it was a a great way to, because with these um, kind of conversations, they can become quite um, academic and abstract. And it was a nice, it was nice to like anchor it in a visual work. Yeah, yeah you mentioned a little bit about being in an echo chamber. Um, I think you started the conversation a little bit about that and increasingly reliant on certain, you know, I think we're all aware of being more reliant on technologies through the pandemic, like in Sharifi's film. I think aside from the panelists themselves, who, as I said, kind of, it was a really interesting range of people, like not just academics, but also artists. And um, there was a poet um, and people with kind of legal, legal um, professional experience who were talking about the kind of legalities of ecocide. So it was a good kind of mix of disciplines, but also in terms of um, being a participant, I think they made it kind of as accessible as possible when you're actually watching it in that they had a live transcript, which was really useful. Um, And also the Q&A function. So, and the panelists were actually responding directly within that as well, which was really helpful. And then all of the sessions were recorded and I'm not sure, but either are or will be made into a podcast series. And each one was accompanied by a reading list. So they're kind of like, broaden them with as many resources as possible right I think my question was just that I think I just was thinking about how with these things it's just so hard to know if it's reaching a non-art audience Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know and like often in the art world it's 
full of liberally minded people mm. and those aren't actually the people that we need to get on board it's the people who don't believe in climate change or mm. don't believe that we have a problem with race in the UK or you know those are the people who need to be engaging in events like this and I think it's just an, it's a such a catch-22 isn't it I think I mean I'm not criticizing them because I think they did everything they could and it's so important to be programming events like this it's just so difficult to know and and only they will know who who was engaging with it because you couldn't see on the um on the webinar but yeah it's just it's a real kind of catch-22 of yeah yeah, how can we make sure that people are getting it and I mean you know it must be the same it's the same with any organization you work in in the arts you know at art when I'm doing art writing I'm thinking you know even me writing this review I'm like well you know art people are going to read it (laughs) you know it's kind of that it's it's ongoing isn't it but I think the fact they brought in legal professionals and um you know Edna Bonham is a historian as well Mm. hopefully that will expand the audience I wonder if you could say a little bit about the subject of resilience and and when and when it sort of ends really um Maybe we all have different capacities about what we can endure and can't endure. And I wondered if you could say something about burnout, fatigue, and even death itself. How how were those subjects approached in these series of talks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first session actually spoke about that quite a lot at the end. Um, so Shona Short was talking about playfulness, um, which was really... and really useful because she's talking about playfulness as something that actually challenges the establishment and also we need to kind of think about the kind of political connotations around play so um actually like there's this really real idea I think particularly in the UK that leisure time and play of working class people is of less value than of the elite because it's the idea of um working class people having to earn their place in society and then these very kind of um, elite establishments for leisure being made for um, more privileged people. So it was the idea of the importance of play. They also spoke about the idea of importance, the importance of nature mm-hmm. and spending time in nature and kind of democratizing nature. Um, so yeah, that was definitely, I think, and I think the moderator, um, of the first session spoke about like the revolutionary value of love and so it was definitely I think it was most addressed in the first session. I mean we think about work and play and in a sense the play is the reward for the work um, mm. and if we think about how labour is often scripted it's often on those lines isn't it, that we earn and, and the excess money that we earn if we are lucky enough um, that excess enables us to have time out and to be able to spend that excess in a way that is, yeah. you know, is not tied to a need that is bound by, let's say, the basics of living. Yeah, um, absolutely. And there was also a conversation about, like, how difficult it is to say no and, mm-hmm. you know, and turn down work. And to, and it, it, but it's all wrapped up in obviously this extractivist capitalism and that we make ourselves into kind of a commodity (laughs) in a sense as well. And it's just so ingrained. And I suppose this is coming back to what they were saying about unlearning and it's unlearning our attitudes towards ourselves, towards others, towards the environment. And 
Yeah, it's tr- it's difficult to talk about because I can hear myself speaking and being like, gosh, that's so idealistic. Yeah. But it's, I think it's kind of one point that I can't actually remember which speaker, but was saying that we, one of the speakers was saying how actually like the system has a huge capacity mm. to like, if we can, I think it was Helen Starr actually was saying, if we can kind of get to Mars and do yeah. stuff like that, like, why can't we get the plastic out of the oceans? You know, it's kind of like we choose to do these idealistic, crazy things, but only some of them. <laughs> and then it's the kind of ones that would actually, it, it would just involve a whole restructuring of the system. So I suppose that's where the resilience comes into it. It's, it's like understanding that that's not going to happen immediately because this is a system that began to be constructed in like 1492. And we're not going to deconstruct it straight away, yeah. but it's kind of finding ways to be resilient while working towards that, I guess. Yeah. And I think it also really is about, as you, I think one of them, this sort of, uh, well, it's about the, the types of bodies and the, this types of the types of bodies that can be uh, are viewed as valuable versus those yeah. that aren't. I think you, uh, the quote by Louisa Prada de Amartin, um, the miracle of surviving and continuing in a system that is made to disavow the lives of certain people. And I think that speaks to me of that language yeah. of like, we go to Mars, but we won't save the planet within that. Yeah, paradigm. I mean, absolutely. And I think um, Edna Bonham was like, particularly interesting on this um, because she was kind of talking about it in relation to COVID and saying, you know, the discourses around COVID and care just can't be disentangled from histories of colonialism and medical experimentation and how actually some people are just made to be perpetually ill through inequality. I think that was what she said. Um, and yeah, so it's just, and another really like really interesting thing she said was how anti-blackness just works every day to kill the imagination of white people. And I think she was quoting someone else with that, but I can't remember, but it is definitely, it's like also considering not thinking, I mean, I think or not thinking about colonialism as having happened and you know the bodies that affected then but also the bodies that continues to affect now yeah. and how then and it's those people you know it's climate change one of the big things that will happen is mass migration and you know people you know it, it yeah. will be other people who will be impacted first <laughs> in in not in the UK <laughs> and by the natural disasters and is kind of understanding that we it's these hierarchies are still very much a huge problem that impact impact how people experience crisis after crisis you know in terms of borders and border control and all of yeah. these things all of them intersect with that like that is the, the point you're making around ecological climate change protections of state sovereignty and so on um mm-hmm. But I think we have to draw a close there, unfortunately, <laughs> but as you say, it's a framework from which we can draw from. And so it just leaves me to say a huge thank you for Tess for joining today. And so on to our final guest for this programme, Saeem de Mercon, who joins us from New York and who's reviewed the retrospective of Art Club 2000 at Artist Space. Saeem, I wonder if we could begin by locating the practice of Art Club 2000 and say something of the period through which they worked and how they came about as a collective. AC2K, as we will uh, yes. or refer to them as, uh, formed in the early 90s in New York um, 
and they were uh, uh, a kind of cohort of Cooper Union uh, students at the time. Um, I mean, one of the things about actually, uh, you know, about the show, or maybe about them, is that um, I couldn't tell you like their names mm. or like the exact number of them. I mean, in the group photos, there looks to be about sort of seven or eight, and there's certainly like a couple of artists or a couple of them who continued uh, artistic practices, namely Danny McDonald and uh, Patterson Beckwith. Um, but as I understand it, they were a kind of uh, a group of students at Cooper Union who um, were studying with um, people like Doug Ashford, uh, Mark Dion and Hans Harker. And uh, yeah, I suppose at the time um, were also uh, kind of close, like hanging out. I don't know the exact nature of the relationship, but basically kind of meet with Colin yeah. Deland, a dealer who, uh, who ran uh, the gallery American Fine Arts and who was showing people like Mark Dion, Andrea Fraser, um, and um, yeah, so I, maybe like they came in contact with him through one of their instructors mm -hmm. um, at the time. Um, but essentially, yes, they they kind of uh, he, Colin Deland, who maybe we'll talk about a bit more later. Um, uh, sort of fosters this uh, kind of collective. Uh, All right, so it's, it was actually Colin Delan actually sort of was the guru behind this collective. But prior That's, to that, they'd not, although they were in the same college together, they weren't actually a collective prior to the, to this. I mean, their formation was drawn partly through or directly from Colin Delan. Yeah, it certainly seems to have, they certainly right. seem to have formed in parallel, yes, to yeah, meeting him and, you know, being involved with that gallery. And, um, you know, I, I believe that Danny McDonald also worked at American Fine Arts. Maybe, I don't okay. know exactly what time, but yes, there was, um, they, they seem to have sort of formed it. In, in parallel, and I just wonder if Colin Deland actually, like how much, how involved he was in in that. Um, I mean, that's one of the uh, other things about the exhibition artist space is that most of the um, uh, uh, bodies of work that are shown, recreations, uh, and I say that like make you you know without having seen any of the original exhibitions, but you know from maybe a kind of like loose configuration of of uh, an exhibition to a kind of ready-made version uh, that took place at American Fine Arts yearly. So yeah. they did think seven shows or eight shows rather at American Fine Arts every summer, and that was okay. something that seemed to have been set up or predetermined in the formation as 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 also the the name kind of suggests right. it has an 
I read the tape, yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so they made a work, they made an ex so the exhibition in a sense was their practice. So the, um, each year the exhibition would constitute their work in a sense, they would make work for this particular show and that would be made every year uh, up until the year 99, which is when the group disbanded, is that correct? Um, yes, and that's also the, um, so out of the um, 10, shows that make up the exhibition at artist space i believe yes seven of them took place at american fine arts uh the eighth was their um and final show at american fine arts in 1999 was it was um 1999 a, a retro disrespect oh, yeah. and that gathered all of the previous works uh, made for uh, the, the past iterations, American Fine Arts, all together on this um, kind of low stage um, behind this theatrical curtain, which is, is held open by this um, kind of like Halloween store, uh, Grim Reaper figure. Um, so that's the only show that isn't recreated um because they're all uh, uh they're all recreated anyway yeah. so in, in place of that um this kind of grim reaper figure is uh holding open the curtain behind which there's um uh vitrines of 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 uh, ephemera and um archival material yeah maybe it's worth mentioning something because i think of when i think of ac2 they have a particular style. Maybe let's describe something about them, which and many people may recognize their work, but many people won't. So maybe describe some of their most iconic work. If you could say that would be quite good to get a sense well, of. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose the work that let's say is sort of quote unquote most recognizable are these um, group photos um, that they made pretty early on and um you know they in which they're in which they're um kind of decked out in uh clothing from uh gap mm. so gap becomes this early um subject matter for them um i think that at the time, it was obviously uh, Gap as a kind of franchise was being rolled out, um, becoming uh, somewhat ubiquitous. Um, but there's something quite astute in this observation of, in their observation of it, kind of on one hand, um, Kind of filling this sort of generational gap, but the, and then on the other, uniforming style, let's say, um, that they seem to have kind of that they seem to kind of latch onto. And so, in these group uh, photographs or portraits, they're they're seen, you know, all wearing like one particular. Um, 
form of gap clothing. I think probably probably the most one of the most recognizable ones is called Untitled Times Square slash Gap Grunge Two, where mm. they're all set out in um, kind of cut off denim and yeah. bandanas. Um, and then some of the other ones uh, see them kind of lounging around in loft style apartments. Um, and yeah, and that, that, and so they, uh, they in the exhibition at Artist Space, though some of those photographs, not all of them, are shown in uh, their first exhibition. I believe their first exhibition called Commingle, which was at American Fine Arts in nineteen ninety three. And I, I personally remember um, the, these photographs being shown at Between Bridges. Uh, mm. in London um, and they're certainly like one of the, the, the first uh, images to kind of come up in a, in a search of uh, Art Club 2000 and I guess what's sort of also interesting about this this particular work and is how it it's become um, Kind of symbolic of of their of their practice is that in one thing that's kind of mentioned in this show or in the in the sort of literature on this show is how Colin Deland at the time advised them against um, using these photographs because he thought they would brand uh, them brand the group and you know that's and I, he was right yeah. In, in a way. Um, but yes, so that's that's the kind of I guess the the kind of control yeah. image. Uh, yeah. But I guess it also speaks to a certain generational feeling of uh, and I think you quote um, what Mark Fisher amongst others, you know, this sort of breezy, ambivalent, normcore relationship to culture and counterculture. Maybe say a little bit about in a way how this exhibition picked up something of that narrative of say 1990s culture a particular kind of american kind of maybe even white american culture maybe as well absolutely i mean it's it's um you know they were mostly white um um you know uh, in their 20s um they look very cool mm. uh, um i guess the you know what's the what is the context of the time? It's 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 kind of sort of uh, Gen X, yeah, kind of era um, of sort of disenfranchisement or. Well, yes, yeah, I think you mentioned Kurt Cobain, uh, the grunge. You know, the sort of grunge thing. It's sort of it is of that sort of slacker. You know, I think of Beck, all these kinds of musicians and singers of that period. Exactly. And yeah. And that's what that's that that's what reminded me of what Mark Fisher said about Kurt Cobain at the time. And he, yeah, I don't have the quote in front of me, but yeah, that um, you know that idea that the sort of uh, alternative had already been subsumed into the mainstream, and maybe that's what something like get the gap or gap. Um, uh, maybe that's why that became a sort of uh, 
object of their critique, yet as Colin Deland sort of criticised them for, they themselves um, uh, they kind of they become the they by doing by having this sort of ambivalent relationship with um, with the object of their critique, they sort of they themselves become it. You know, maybe in a kind of culture of of uh, so-called individuality, mm. where everyone's dressed the same, um, and that was what was being sold. You know, yeah. this the image that was being sold, um, and that's also why, in a way, like it's 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 a um, the perhaps more than than those. Uh, that that series of photographs that the the photograph they took of Colin Deland in the style of a Gap advertisement, or specifically in the style of uh, an Annie Leibovitz um, a photo shoot for Gap called Individuals of Style, which doesn't quite make sense. Hmm. Um, that sort of you know, they, they take this photograph of Colin Deland looking very sort of film noirish um, in stylistic sort of black and white and um, mimicking this uh, photo shoot. And then they, um, uh, you know, they, they print it in art forum as an advertisement for which then American Fine Arts receives a cease and desist letter from... <laughs> Uh, so, but, you know, but that's also, you know, and that's like one of their first projects and, and in a sense, you know, that game, that gains them some notoriety, mm. I guess. Uh, yeah, they're kind of provocateurs of a type, aren't they, you know, um, and I was thinking actually, it's maybe we don't have to necessarily talk about this, but I did wonder, like, comparatively what was happening in London, the UK, like YBA, it's sort of interesting to think what was happening stateside um by comparison uh, absolutely about that? yeah yeah i was i was i did think that i was thinking about that when um when i first went and saw the the show and you know and also not being in london at that time or being in mm -hmm. the us at that time but um you know the obvious I, at first the obvious comparison was bank mm -hmm. but then i was sort of kind of wondering like well Maybe it's more, you know, the YBAs, but maybe it's some, maybe it's kind of a bit of both, right? Mm. Because it's like, you've got these uh, <laughs> art students who are sort of both kind of, let's say, I don't know, um, kind of cocky and na naive. Yeah. Um, uh, coming out of art school, like wanting to, you know, prove themselves or sort of challenge their predecessors. Um, but uh, I just, I, I, I don't, it, it wasn't, it was only later where I thought, well, you know, bank might be the sort of obvious kind of countercultural comparison, but then again, um, uh, that they, you know, then, then again, they are, you know, they're, they're sort of partnering up with 
who was who's certainly revered for at the time as being one of the most sort of progressive dealers in mm. the city you know and 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 who's got um uh, who who kind of create made a scene around american finance not you know and and this isn't also also include uh, exclude pat hearn yeah, I think what's interesting as well is that we're talking about, say, Colin Delane, we're not talking this, that in a way it's the anonymity of the, this collective is quite interesting. That idea of anonymity can be quite powerful uh, or something to be said about retaining that anonymity, mm -hmm. um, because when you sort of know who it is, uh, then it's almost like a kind of form of, of acceptance, you know, mm. and perhaps the sort of um, impact of like when you don't know who's behind something, you're a lot more sort of vulnerable to maybe uh, the critique that is sort of being leveled or presented. They can equally be kind of just seen as, yeah, operatives in a branding exercise. And that branding exercise is, is in this sense, a collective of artists. But um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I was actually also interested to know, um, in terms of actually the exhibition itself, the materials are on which are on display, are they actual works made from that period, or are they recreations, or are they from collectors? How, wh where is the work from? I th it, um, it, it seems to be a kind of a lot of everything. Um, um, there's there's certainly some some work has had to be recreated. Um, it's a good question in a way. I'm not sure how much of this is sort of part of, a, you know, part of private or public collections. I kind of wonder whether this exhibition is, uh, whether it is sort of a, a way of kind of elevating them um, and, 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 positioning them in within this you know within a sort within a history and that's the other important thing to say that this is a, you know a history amongst many thanks Saeem I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there I'm afraid but um, as always people that are interested can read the review in this month's issue of Art Monthly and it just leaves me to say a great thank you to both Saeem to Tess and to Adam for joining uh, on this program and uh, for you for listening okay many thanks and goodbye <laughs>